Hey, welcome back to the Sex Ed series. We're going to talk about queer inclusive sex education today, as well as the experiences of some queer people in sex education, which has historically been cisgender and heterosexually centered. This topic is particularly crucial to speak of right now as the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida was signed by Governor Rob DeSantis in March of 2022. As I'm recording this, it's April of 2022. This bill and its intentionally vague language forbids conversations of sexual orientation and gender identity from kids in kindergarten through third grade, according to a story by the Associated Press from March. Here's my basic take. Um, I, I find that bill and its cousins appalling. Um, the major reason I find them appalling is it seems to me they remove from discussion questions that need to be discussed. Um, uh, questions that are confronting all of us, right? But at the same time, Susie, those of us who are appalled by those bills on those grounds, we also have to ask ourselves, do we want that discussion? Or do we simply want to inscribe our point of view? So, like, is gender something that is fluid? Is gender something that is infinite in its variety? Um, can people change genders? These seem to me to be complicated questions. And again, I object deeply to the Florida law and its cousins because they are quite explicitly an effort to take those questions off the table, right? But I do think there's a lot of complexity there, and I think it's very difficult to consistently oppose those laws if what you want to do is inscribe your own answers. As a queer person myself, I feel like I missed out on the sexual education necessary for me to fully come into my identity. Sex ed can be a traumatic place for those who are not cisgender and heterosexual, as a few people will speak of in this episode. I spoke with Will Leonard, who lives in Colorado, and he told me that the cishet norms that were pushed on him were quite uncomfortable. So my name's Will. Um, I'm 21 and I use he, him pronouns. Um, right now I am getting ready to, <clears throat> excuse me, graduate college in the end of June um, with a creative writing degree, uh, concentration in poetry. I work at a home decor store um, and I also work as a mentor for the Rainbow Youth Center. So it was really weird. Um, and I remember my classmates also thought it was really weird, just the whole setup of it. So this nurse comes into our um, health class, which covered many different topics over the semester. And she, gave, she passed out a sheet of paper to every single person, and it had like five questions on it. One of the questions was like, do you think masturbation's okay? Um, another one was... I don't know, it was about like religious practices and reference to sex and like what you thought was okay based on religion. And then like the last one was, do you think it's okay for LGBTQ plus people to have sex? And I remember being like, what? Like just reading over it without context. Like what, what is this? And so then she gave context and she goes, no one needs to put their name on it. 
just anonymously like answer like yes or no to each one of these questions, like what you think. So everyone did that. And then she goes, okay, so crumple up the piece of paper into a ball and then throw it to the front of the classroom. So we all did that. And then everyone was instructed to get up and go pick up a random piece of paper. And then we all had to sit down with this new piece of paper and we had to go around the classroom explaining why we thought the person who answered these questions answered them the way that we did. And I remember I got the one piece of paper that was like LGBTQ plus people cannot have sex. Like that was the one, I was the one that got that. So I remember just like looking at this, like, oh my God, irony, like what are we gonna do? So she asked me like, so what do you think that person was thinking when they said that? And I think my initial response was, well, first of all, they're probably just being really homophobic because they're actually gay. And everybody laughed. And then she told me to take it more seriously. And I was like, out as a very loud and proud butch lesbian at the time. And so like everyone was just like kind of looking at me. I don't, I don't know, the spotlight was on me to answer this. And I felt the pressure from the class and from her and I was super uncomfortable. Like, no matter what I say, like my anger wouldn't have been valid, um, right? Like it just would have made me look crazy. And I couldn't educate these people when she was the educator and I was wrong, right? That's how that goes. So I don't know, I probably just, I kind of blacked out what I said next, but I think I just responded with what the closest thing to what she wanted to hear that I could think of. So there was a sex educator from the school who wanted to come down and talk to us. And she did a presentation on her sex ed and how she, how it was like more inclusive. And I was like looking at it and it was like the same sort of like diagram that like I looked at like with body parts. And so there was like a Venn diagram and there was ones it's like, well, both sexes can have this genitalia. And so like you put those words here and I was just like looking at it and I was like, when you think about it, if you're gonna phrase it that way, everybody can have the same genitalia. So I went up and I like removed cause it was like Velcro names and I like put them all in the middle. And she was like, okay, well then what's the standard? And I was like, it's not cis head people though. I don't know what it is, but it's not this. And like, she couldn't even hear what I was saying. And I don't know, know if I said that very well, um, but yeah, that was, that was um, it brought up some stuff. I was with the executive director when I did that presentation and they were one of the people that I told about my initial experience with sex ed. Um, and so I like looked at them and I was like, you remember this? Like, this is kind of bringing that back up for me. So we tried to talk to the school sex educator and like explain to them like why that was still like really like, like we call it red signs at the Rainbow Youth Center. Like, like it was just like red flags, red signs everywhere. Like you could just feel it physically in our bodies. Um, and Alok talks about that too. Like you can like, you can feel that in your body immediately and you have to like listen to that um I don't know it's like I shouldn't have to feel that way when I talk about sex education with people it feels like the only safe space that I do have to talk about sex is with other queer people what Will said in the end here definitely checks out to what his peers are thinking too the reality is that most people want sex education with and from people who share similar experiences to them
If we covered every identity and experience in our sex education classrooms, wouldn't everyone finally be on the same page? I asked Jonathan Zimmerman what he thinks the solution is. I think the solution is to embrace our differences on this subject rather than to wish them away. I'm not saying that that's going to yield nirvana, because nothing does or will. But that seems to me both a more realistic and a more small d democratic option than the others on the table. Like, hey, I don't give a shit that you don't like the condom on the banana. This is what we do in America. Or let's just not talk about the subject at all. Those don't seem like good solutions to me. I'm much more friendly to the idea of, okay, look, we differ on this subject, including on whether it's appropriate for 16-year-olds to have sex. We differ on that. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. I could prove it to you, right? Why pretend otherwise when the kids are in the room? They know it's a fact, too. Um, so let's say it. Let's speak it and name it. And let's talk this out. Someone else I spoke with, Noah Waxman, seems to think it's possible for us all to look at sex education differently. So my name is Noah. Um... I use they them pronouns. I am non-binary transmasculine. Um, I am currently in between schools, taking a year off from college, but um, returning this fall where TBD. Um, and um, I've been involved in like kind of sex education and sexual health spaces since I was a junior um, in high school. Well, I guess end of junior year, kind of more senior year. However, it's very much like always been an interest and a passion of mine. Um, I think more than I realized and when I saw the opportunity to join like intentional spaces about education and um, I, I was really excited and realized that like, this is very much something I want to continue with throughout my life formally and informally. I think in my ideal world, sexual health education is like, <clears throat> it's not even, it doesn't even need to be explicitly inclusive in the sense that, you know, harm reduction techniques for binding and tucking and like, <clears throat> language and identity exploration and then sexual health um like I guess a really big part of like um trans specific sexual health would be like uh consent and um I guess kink to um revolving around the ideas of dysphoria and euphoria and like how to prioritize those in sex because it definitely adds a whole new challenge and like you're allowed to say no because of dysphoria and you know things might feel good physically and not emotionally and that's okay there's nothing wrong with you <laughs> um but uh, yeah so like going back to this idea of like not explicitly inclusive in the sense that like everyone is just taught this under the assumption that they all need to know it right that everyone needs to know how to bind safely whether you're going to bind or not not just so that if later in life you decide you want to start binding, but if you see your friend binding who might be having a hard time and so is maybe ignoring some of the harm reduction tips, 
you can check in with them and be like, hey, I noticed that you were binding for like 12 hours today and didn't take a break. I know it might be really hard. Is there anything I can do to support you and remind you to take breaks and remind you to stretch? You know, uh, do you want to go shopping for a really big hoodie? Whatever, you know, <laughs> like um, I think just normalizing all of these what are considered kind of like niche health needs as like everybody health needs um and making that information accessible um whether you think you need it or not basically sex ed for for young adults who attend this uu church unitarian universalism church Others who filled out my survey had this experience as well, and you'll hear more about that in the religion and sex ed episode coming later in the season. Um, so I don't know how old I was. I must have been around seventh grade, so what, 10 or 11, maybe, um, or 12, something like that. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a year-long program, and we met once a week, um, and it is real inclusive like thorough sexual health education um and it's led by uh, like members of the church um so or like adults who are part of the community i remember there was like one gay woman in uh, uh, like i think there were like five adult leaders um and i i think the curriculum has come a very long way since i was a student um and just even just like queerness being normalized but I remember like learning about like types of sex basically and that they fall into three main categories of like oral <clears throat> anal or like penetrative or penis vagina sex right and I remember learning about those completely outside of the context of gender right like it didn't there was no discussion of gender it was just like here are different ways that you can be physically intimate in a sexual manner right and here are some of the risks here's what you need to be conscious of and so like the concept that anal sex was like explicitly gay was something i wasn't clued into um like culturally <laughs> until later and i was like what is like i learned about it just as like a just another way to have sex and then i think i got to high school and people were like oh my god no like we can't have anal um like i actually remember my boyfriend at the time um, I was I was cishet presenting and I was like sophomore year and he was like we were talking about the sex that we wanted to have we actually had really good communication about sex but he was like we cannot have anal looking back on it very much a homophobic thing <laughs> um, like definitely fragile masculinity but um, so that really I think shaped me I forget a lot of what I learned but I think just having that kind of messaging, I remember one workshop talking about like, when you feel like you're ready to have sex, you can do that. And so we were reading different scenarios about um, like teenagers who were in households where their parents like were saying they're not allowed to have sex. And so choosing to book a hotel room with their current partner and whatever because it's their right to and just again that kind of sex positive messaging like I don't think I realized how radical that was at the time um and we I remember having a class like a, a conversation about what you know the experience of disabled people and their um 
frustrations and experiences with sex and that it, like I don't think there was anyone who was visibly like disabled in the room it was uh very much about like physical disabilities um so I think that conversation could have been had better but we were like basically reading from like a pamphlet or a book that had information and the fact that that was even included in talking about like um you know what it means how, how to navigate sex if you have a physical disability um and and the fact that that's never really talked about the role of being a sex educator is kind of a constant thing whether i have that formal organization i'm a part of or just everyday life um <clears throat> and so um when i'm in situations or like just life positions where i don't i'm not really backed by an organization or i don't have the resources or whatever it's much more about individual conversations um and kind of just breaking down stigmas and um spreading information with among friends and peers um because i very much see that work as kind of deconstructing and reconstructing this sexual health education people have gotten throughout childhood and such um so like i i think about um like one of the most recent conversations i had with one of my friends who went to uwc with me she's now at um nyu abu dhabi and was talking to me about how she had recently purchased a binder and started wearing one and wasn't totally much sure what it meant for her gender identity but was just really excited about feeling good in her body and i was like that is so awesome has anyone talked to you about like how to bind safely um she was like no and i was like okay here's the rundown um you know and i guess like that <clears throat> Is more specifically like trans healthcare, but I think very much falls under the umbrella of sexual health for sure. Um, so conversations like that, and then even just like practicing, um, like I think intentional and healthy, like sexual experiences in my own life is really like an important part of my work because if I am not, you know, if I'm not practicing the things that I am encouraging others to do, then I'm not, I'm not doing anything right. <laughs> well, that might be like, I guess a, a, an intense way to put it, but like, I've got to actualize what I believe. Almost everything we need to know about sex isn't shown in the media. Thankfully, now that we have platforms like TikTok and Instagram, individual creators and users can share their opinions and experiences for anyone they want to see. Many of the people I spoke with about their sex education experiences have learned what they know from the internet. For Heather Corinna, the internet has always been harnessed for the uses of sex education. Heather is the founder of Scarletine, an online information and messaging platform where young people can go to find information about all things sex and way more. Since conversations between minors and adults about sexual health and experiences can be tricky, Heather created Scarletine in 1998 to house a plethora of resources all about sex. It's all different all over the place. So, you know, absolutely sex ed can make a difference you know and and it depends on the kind of sex ed you know if just if the sex ed we were giving was just about what kind of contraception you use you know how periods work 
um, and STIs, then no, that probably is not going to make a big difference because that's not actually any kind of information about the kinds of things that generally are going to help <laughs> sexual violence. That's not anything about consent. That's not anything about uh, healthy relationships and relationship equality. That's not anything about pleasure. You know, a lot of sex right. that, that doesn't include pleasure. When we talk about pleasure, we talk about the importance of everyone in a sexual interaction feeling Absolutely. good physically and emotionally, which is a very different message, even from just saying it has to be okay with everybody, mm -hmm. you know, and even that just that it has to be okay with everybody is not even in quite a lot of super, super basic sex ed. I think one more thing that's really important is that um, both because a lot of programs aren't designed this way, a lot of teachers aren't trained this way, and a lot of teachers are either explicitly told not to do this or are understandably in this culture too afraid to do this. A lot of sex ed classes are not, there's not gonna be one-on-one -on -one conversations. Right. Um, you know, where young people can go ask their own questions and talk to people privately. You know, th this is all still happening in the culture of a school, which mm -hmm. more times than not is really toxic and not really socially conducive to this stuff. Uh, you know, when a site like Scarletine is providing information for young people, there's no curriculum. You know, it's okay. We've been around for 25 years. I mean, you see how much content is there. It's literally self-designed. If I were not, if we were not writing this down, if this were merely a one-on-one -on -one private conversation, that's not necessarily anything that we would have to think about. Right. Um, you know, and even our one-on-one -on -one private conversations, you know, our boards are anonymous, but from the beginning, I always wanted them public facing. And one of the reasons I did is I didn't want anyone to be able to say, well, we don't know what they're talking about with them. I wanted to say, here we are. And I wanted us to be able to model for people how to have these kinds of conversations. And, you know, we're also aware that some people just don't feel safe or able, you know, they, they just, they're not comfortable having these conversations. So maybe at least they can read somebody else having the conversation Absolutely. they wanted to have, they could benefit from that. Um, so that's that. I mean, I think another thing is that we, you know, we can't, if we, there's so many users, our direct services only wind up being like 1% of the readers that we have. So the people that just come here and read you know, we can't know that they got everything that they need. We can't know what they left understanding and not understanding. Um, you know, we can't know how they're doing. <laughs> like it's that that's a little tricky. And even in our direct services, because again, we don't track people. This is this is entirely elective for them. Yep. And that's a that's a plus. I'm I'm an alternative educator. I'm compulsory schooling is not, not a fan, um, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, if in direct services, we have someone we're worried about and that's how we don't really ever get to know necessarily that they're okay, you know, mm. um, and that's, you know, that's, 
the nature of the beast, anybody that works hotlines or anything will tell you, but it's, it, it would be different if they were enrolled in a school, which they came back and attended every day. And, right. and we would be able to get to know and maybe even see them year after year to even kind mm-hmm. of see that they were still okay um, or not and intervene and, you know, do the things that you do when, you know, we're this builds a kind of community, but we allow that, you know, they get to come and go just as they please. You can't, you can't create sex education that as for young people, that is the, in which you absolutely only have the young person in mind. Like, you know, we make it way more youth centered than possible, but if you, but you have to consider their parents. And I don't mean in a way that I'm like, I don't want to, we don't want to break up families. We won't, we care about their parents because they're people. I mean, of course you do that way because we're human beings and not <laughs> monsters. Um, and we do care about their parents, including that there are people, but also, you know, there are people that matter to these people that matter to us. Um, but, but in the way of that, in the way of, uh, you know, general and cultural approval. And that's, that's not a great content standard. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's not a great thing to have to consider when you're trying to figure out the quality of your education and information and your content, right? Like, I, not when it's not for that. You know, when, whenever you're making something, and you're writing something, you know, the, the quality of the content should be for whom it is, <laughs> yep. you know, above all else. Users on the website have the option to chat with people live who work for Scarletine. They also have the option just to read what they want about sex and sexuality. And there are thousands of pieces of literature published on the site that dive deeper into almost any topic you can think of in regards to sex. Heather said the type of sex education we we are all trying to do is centered around the young person who needs it. This is why Scarletine operates the way it does. Noah and I spoke more about having these conversations with minors as a minor, as this could be a solution to a problem that I've reflected on a lot. Um, the only experience I have doing that is like when I was a minor talking to peers. And I actually think that that is that's almost kind of like the best way to do it, you know, because um, it, it, yeah, it, it makes kind of safeguarding and boundaries a lot easier to navigate. Um, yeah. Could you um, tell me a little more about the intentional spaces that you have been able to join? Yeah, totally. So I was telling you a little bit about my like high school for last the last two years um, it was kind of a unique space. So we had a group called SWEET, which has morphed quite a bit since I was a student. But when I was there, it stood for um, the Sexual Wellness Education and Empowerment Team. Um, And so it was a group of between 10 and 15 students, I think. Um, And we worked with a faculty member on our campus and did kind of um, educational presentations for the community at large. We had kind of smaller conversations among dorms. Um, I remember like one on like information, information about STIs, um, where we had, we had like a reserved like dorm time. 
and two people per dorm presented. So we kind of connected with community in various ways like that. And then we also acted as a confidential resource for all students on campus. And so they could come and talk to us really about anything, ask questions. We had like little information packets outside our doors. Uh, we provided all of the campus RAs with a big box of condom, lube, and dental dams. Um, and then kind of the, the most intense part was um, we basically fielded any um, kind of sexual assault concerns. And by being that confidential resource, it was a lot easier for students to approach us um, rather than an adult on campus who was a mandatory reporter. And so we would kind of help them, walk them through the process of experiencing their emotions and uh, just being there for support and then helping them figure out for themselves what they wanna do to move forward to feel safe on campus whether that's forget that everything happened or, you know, pursue legal action or just pursue, like, get a dorm change, whatever. Um, and so um, that was kind of the more intense side of things. Um, yeah, and that was that was mainly end of junior year and beginning of senior year of high school. Wow, yeah, that sounds like really helpful work and like, ex like such, um, I've never like heard of a resource like that with the sexual assault um, stuff, like being that access point for your peers. Yeah. I definitely have mixed feelings about it. Um, it like myself and a number of my friends definitely like sustained trauma from having that kind of responsibility as like 17, 18 year olds. Um, so my personal feeling is that it is a really great idea in theory and that it has got to be backed up with way more student support for the students doing the work. Um, and so I, again, I think the idea is really great and having peers to lean on for those things is like totally <clears throat> kind of life-changing for some people. Right. But, um, if it's not backed up by the right systems, it's it can very much cause a lot of harm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, there have to be there have to be resources for you all as um I mean that's like that is like a therapist role almost. That's like Yeah. It's yeah. So the the appropriate training necessary and then also just being like, you know, also helping students learn to set boundaries. Right. Like I learned to set boundaries through that experience. And now like I'm I'm super great at being like, here's my capacity. Here's what I can offer you and support. And I will listen to you and then I'll tell you to go talk to a professional kind of thing, you know. Uh, but at the time, I did not have that skill built. Um, and so I very much made my needs secondary to the people relying on me. Mm. But so thinking about kink, I never that was one thing that my like se sexual health education was very much lacking and that I am still on a journey of educating myself and others on. Um, and so I think one of the things I love about being a part of like the sexual health groups that I'm in is like I learn so much 
Um, and if you honestly, like I could put you in touch with a number of different people if you're interested. I don't know how what their availability or like interest looks like. But if you wanted to try, I could totally, totally make that happen. Thank you. Um, but like I, I learned so much from my peers. Um, and so like kink for me is definitely, I think it is becoming more familiar for me to take on an educational role or like a, a, a teacher role, I guess. Um, but when I, I first started in like more formal sexual health educator positions, I, I was very much the student when it came to kink. Um, and I really appreciate how much my peers taught me um, just kind of through proximity and stuff. Um, but I think one, okay, actually two workshops come to mind that I did with the she's um, thinking about pleasure. One of them was, um, I think we were having a conversation about like how to make my or how to make masturbation a mindful practice. Um, and so we kind of talked about like, we split like masturbation into stages of before, during, after, and then kind of like what mindfulness can go into each stage. So um, before um, kind of thinking about what headspace are you in? What, what does your time restraint look like? Um, where are you? All those different things in terms of, is this gonna be a rushed, stressed experience? Are you going to be trying to be super quiet um are you are you doing this with a purpose are you trying to you know reduce sex drive before you go do something or are you trying to relieve stress um or do you want to focus or fall asleep um or is it just you have a day off and time to yourself and you just want to feel good you know and none of those are like the right or wrong answer, but just being conscious of like, okay, these are the factors going into this practice. And I'm conscious of those. And then during trying to stay present in your body, being conscious of like any um, like interruptions or whatnot, um, I could like, I could probably pull up this spreadsheet that it would probably be more clear, but um. And then like after thinking about giving yourself time to breathe and um, I like one of my favorite parts of sex is like coming down after an orgasm. Um, and so I hate when that is rushed. You know, I hate when it's like, great, you came. All right, like sex is over. Let's go do other things. I'm like, mm -mm. like we're in the middle, <laughs> you know, like sex is not over until I have like had my, I don't know, like la la time, you know? um definitely so just thinking about that and masturbation and um and then also thinking about like cleaning toys and just kind of like aftercare with yourself um and then also like one framing that i actually like i remember talking about this and like i've definitely been really conscious of trying to internalize this for myself since then is thinking about you know masturbation you're really having sex with yourself right um and if that's the case getting intentional consent from yourself 
the same way you would when you're having sex with anyone else. Um, and so for me, especially as a trans person, sometimes when dysphoria kicks in during sex, whether it's with other people or with just myself, I go to a place of dissociation before I have a chance to like stop. Right. And once I'm in that space of dissociation where I'm, I'm not really present in my body, I'm not really feeling what's happening or I'm, I'm just like, I don't know, kind of hard to explain, but like I'm not feeling great, but I'm also no longer in a headspace to advocate for myself. And so I basically just kind of let things happen until they stop, you know, rather than saying I want them to stop now. And so trying to like be conscious and catch that before it happens um, and, and notice myself heading in that direction and stop it before I get to the point where I can't. Um, and then in terms of masturbation, thinking about that too, like I think that's definitely happened for me while I'm masturbating and, and being like, okay, like, um again how do I, I catch myself heading in a in a dysphoric direction in a dissociative direction and how do i get consent from myself the same way i would anybody else right so if i see that i'm becoming not fully present not fully enjoying what i'm doing i can stop i should stop right like i should stop having sex with myself because i'm no longer comfortable and like i don't think that's a framing i had necessarily like thought of before when it comes to pleasure particularly when it's like solo play yeah um i think there's a lot of space and room left for educators who may not know exactly what they're talking about or may not have the best intentions in mind we don't want vulnerable children being put into a situation where they can be taken advantage of by people who are of a higher authority than they are and I think that this can be tricky and this may even be the resistance that people have against conversations of pleasure to me it seems like Noah has a solution to this and they harnessed that extremely well when they were in high school the most important thing to take away from this episode is that queer sex education doesn't just mean sex education for and about the LGBTQ plus community this does need to be a part of it, of course, but the queering of sex education means looking at it completely different. Like how Will put all the body parts and labels in the center of the diagram, or how Noah wants the teaching of binding to be included in all sex ed. Stay tuned for next week's episode, as we will dive into the complexities of all of this in conversation with religion, Catholic schools, and sex education. La 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 la